After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they'd spoken to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, through the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business." that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the people to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. I um, wonder whether you enjoy a pantomime. Uh, whenever the villain turns up, whether it's Captain Hook, or whether it's the, uh, the Wicked Queen, the whole audience begin to, uh, to boo and to hiss and to stamp at uh, their feet. Well, the Jewish festival of Purim uh, celebrates the events recorded in the book of Esther, but the Jews celebrate it a little bit like we enjoy panto. Uh, everyone dresses up in fancy dress. 
Uh, and as the story of how the Jews were rescued uh, from the wicked plot that we've read about, uh, whenever the villain's name is mentioned, Haman, uh, they all stamp on the floor, they all boo, they all hiss, they all shake little rattles and things like this. And it is a little bit like uh, a panto. And so we're introduced to uh, Haman here in Esther chapter 3, and he is a villain. He is uh, the, uh, the wicked person. But the key to understanding this chapter, uh, I think, is verses 5 and 6. Uh, where it says, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Uh, when uh, Haman finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, then a centuries-old enmity uh, that we read about, actually, in Exodus chapter 17, because Haman was an Amalekite, uh, that centuries-old uh, hatred of the Jews comes out. Haman doesn't just want to kill Mordecai for disrespecting him. He wants to wipe out all of the Jews, everywhere. So here are God, and Haman wants to wipe them out. Uh, what is at stake here, as we read uh, this chapter, is God's entire plan of salvation. If the Jews are wiped out, then the Messiah cannot come. God has promised the Messiah would come uh, from this nation, and if they're wiped out, then the Messiah isn't going to come, and Satan has won. God has lost. Well, we know the story, don't we? We know the story uh, so well. Haman doesn't win. God's plan of salvation moves forward exactly to his time scale, exactly to his plan, and the Jews can celebrate one of the most joyful festivals at uh, the festival of Purim. Uh, verse 7 tells us how that festival gets its name. Uh, Haman, the villain of the story, cast lots or purr to find out the most auspicious day to execute his ungodly plan. And the plural of purr is Purim, giving the festival its name. Living in the West, I don't think we quite understand what is being said there. Uh, we don't understand the significance of, of that, little, uh, that little statement about it being the casting of lots uh, that determines uh, when Haman's plot is going to come into, uh, into play. Uh, many of you know my daughter-in-law, Ivy, is Chinese. Uh, despite China being an atheistic, communist state that disavows uh, any notion that there is a God, uh, before she became a Christian, she and her family, who were very high up in the Communist Party, uh, she and her family were real idol-worshipping heathen. 
We don't come across people like that very often, do we, in this country, people who worship idols. But my daughter-in-law did. Uh, Chinese society is totally dominated by superstition and astrology and Eastern mysticism. What we perceive as Eastern culture and what we perceive as a few symbols and good luck charms and things like this, uh, have you ever seen a couple of fish sort of hanging in Chinese windows? Uh, they're a, a good luck uh, Thing, and they're invoking Chinese gods to come and bring that luck. Um, Chinese medicine, uh, acupuncture, feng shui, yoga, and the likes, it's all deeply rooted in Eastern religion, in ancestor worship, and the gods of the elements, earth, wind, fire, and water. In the West, these ideas are sometimes promoted, aren't they, as healthy alternative lifestyles. But underlying it all, uh, there is a spiritual dimension that only gets taught as you get drawn deeper into it. Uh, it really saddens me when I sometimes see Christians buying into these things, uh, supposing, supposing that they're really just for health benefits and not recognizing that actually there is a spirituality behind it, uh, which uh, if, it, if it isn't up front when you, when you begin soon, uh, soon comes to the fore as you begin to practice it. And so we need to be wary, don't we, of accidentally promoting practices that at their heart are spiritual practices, ungodly spiritual practices, and a gateway into false religion. Well, Ivy's father, um, as the wedding approached, came over uh, and uh, had about two weeks with us before the wedding. He was getting very, very upset about the dates of the wedding uh, and about uh, getting married on a blue carpet in our church. We had a blue carpet down, just as you have at the back there. Not a very lucky color in China. Red is the color to go for. And uh, it created real problems, real tensions. Uh, for a week or so beforehand, I was away on a mission. Beth was down in London showing them the sights, and uh, uh, they were having stand-up arguments in front of Buckingham Palace, really. It got very, very heated. And the number of phone calls I had from Beth during that week, uh, who bore the brunt of it all. And it was all Chinese superstition coming to the fore. Why was that the case? Well, it wasn't an auspicious day we'd chosen. Uh, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, happening with the usual good luck uh, symbols. If a bride gets married in red in the UK, it has a very different uh, connotation, doesn't it, uh, to in China. Uh, so these things all do have a, sp a spiritual significance, but his objections weren't cultural. They were spiritual objections. It was all tied up with false religion and a reliance on omens and the ancestors and the gods of the elements smiling on this wedding. Well, um, we'll explain the whole story to you at some point. It's quite a long story, but actually that day proved to be a step in how Papa became a Christian and he was converted uh, at the wedding. 
So praise the Lord uh, for that. But the point that I want you to understand, and the reason I'm mentioning this now, uh, is about the casting of lots uh, and why it took months for that casting of lots to sort of come to fruition and this plan to be set uh, against the Jews. It was because they were searching for the most auspicious day. They were calling on uh, the gods of Persia uh, to bless this uh, this destruction of the Jews that Haman uh, had got planned. He wanted to wipe out uh, the Jews uh, and he wanted to make sure that the gods of Persia were on his side uh, as he did that. And so this plot distinctly has a spiritual dimension to it. Make no uh, mistake here, what is opened up before us is not simply uh, an account of one wicked man, Haman, uh, against a godly man, uh, Mordecai. This is a spiritual battle that's opening up before us between the gods of Persia and the one true God, uh, Yahweh. And what is at stake is God's plan of salvation for the world. Because had the Jews been wiped out, as I said earlier, there would have been no Messiah coming into the world. God had said it would be through this nation that uh, the world would be blessed. Um, just changing tack a little bit. Um, towards the end of World War II, uh, the outcome of the war was obvious to everybody before uh, we got to the end of it. Uh, the Nazis had already been defeated in the war in the West, uh, but Japan was fighting on. Uh, by then, it was clear Japan had lost the war, but they still fought on. Um, from the moment the atom bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, there was no way back for Japan. Uh, the winner was obvious. Uh, the Japanese army fought on for another two weeks after the dropping of the bomb. Uh, the Japanese government took four weeks before they surrendered after the dropping of the bomb. Uh, but in 1974, 30 years after the war ended, one Japanese soldier, Lieutenant Anada, was still stubbornly fighting on, on his own, 30 years later, and the war had been finished. It was over. When Morris introduced um, the book of Esther to us, he outlined the, uh, the idea of salvation history uh, over here, we had uh, creation and the fall. And over there, we had uh, God's people uh, being redeemed uh, and God coming uh, in all his glory, or the Lord Jesus coming in all his glory and uh, taking his people to heaven. And right in the middle was the cross. And that was God's plan of salvation. And the whole of that plan, start to finish, was completely in place before the creation of the world, in any shape or form. Nothing could stop it. Satan had already lost by the time of the fall. Even before he first tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, he'd lost. Not one part of history 
has ever taken God by surprise. At no point has God ever had to adjust or change his plan to take into account uh, something that he hadn't anticipated and that was unexpected. And the outcome of God's plan of salvation was as certain before Adam fell as it will be when Christ returns uh, in glory for all to see. No power or authority in the spirit world uh, is ever going to prevail, is ever going to win against God's plan. And Haman's plot, Haman's plan, is just not going to succeed, is it? Well, we live in that period after the cross. Now, anybody with eyes to see it, anybody uh, that, uh, that has got their eyes and ears open will see that uh, there is only one outcome. It is victory for King Jesus. And even Satan can see that now. He knows that his fate is sealed. But he still fights on. He hasn't got any chance at all of winning. Satan is not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. But he did know the Old Testament prophecies about a Messiah. Uh, he did know that uh, the Messiah would come through this one family. Uh, but he didn't know the details. Uh, he didn't know uh, who it was. He didn't know when it was going to come into, uh, into effect. And so all the way through this uh, salvation history uh, that Morris outlined for us, he tries to destroy it because he doesn't know what the outcome is going to be. He is not omniscient. If he can wipe out God's people as they journey through the wilderness to the promised land then God's promises will not stand. That's why we read Exodus 17. If the Amalekites can wipe out Israel before they even get going as a nation, Satan wins. If wicked King Herod can kill the king of the Jews at birth, uh, uh, when, you know, the moment he's born, then God is not sovereign and Satan wins. Well, Esther chapter 3 stands in that long line of attacks against God's people. If Satan can wipe out the Jews through Haman, then God's plan falls. They will not stand, and Satan becomes Lord. And so the stakes are high, aren't they? Well, this is my first point. We live after the cross. Satan now knows that he cannot win. Looking back, we can see how all the Old Testament prophecies come to fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think that if Satan realized by hanging the Lord Jesus Christ on a cross, he was actually bringing God's plan into effect, do you think he would have done it? But that's what was happening, wasn't it? The cross was central to God's plan. It had to be there. And Satan would not have got those Roman soldiers to put the nails in his hands and his feet if he'd have realized that that was actually bringing God's plan of salvation into place. But he knows now because it's 
clear to every uh, to everyone. After the resurrection, even Satan could see he had lost. Death itself has been defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ. We should know that Satan has lost already. His doom is sealed. Jesus has already won the victory. In our individual lives and in our life as a church, Satan keeps lobbing in hand grenades, doesn't he? To try and spoil it, to try and cause mayhem. But it's all too late for him. All he can do is thrash around on the deck like a shark that's been reeled in. And it's been landed on the deck of the ship and it's still thrashing around. If you put your hand by its mouth, you'll lose your hand. But that shark has only got one destination, hasn't it? It's dead as soon as it's landed. That's the position, isn't it, that Satan finds himself in. He's thrashing around. Christ has already secured a victory on the cross. And we are moving towards that day when every knee shall bow. And Satan and his horde of fallen angels will be forced to bow before the king of kings and acknowledge him as Lord. We live after the cross. We live in the mopping up operation. Satan will do what damage he can, like Lieutenant Anada, 30 years after the war has finished, but he has already lost. The difficulties we face today as a church, the pain that we endure as individuals in our individual walk before the Lord, they're just the mopping up exercise, aren't they? Uh, they're painful. Yeah, they're very painful. But the victory and the end point is already guaranteed. Christ is absolutely certain of victory, and even Satan knows that. The second point I want to make is this, that when we face hostility, it's all too easy to concentrate on the people who are the face of that hostility. Uh, of the attacks against us, your, uh, your boss at work or your colleague at work, uh, the other pupils in your class at school or your neighbour, uh, whoever it is. Uh, Paul tells us this, doesn't he, in Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's really where the battle's taking place. And what we face on a day-to-day -day basis is an outworking of that battle here on earth. Uh, Haman was only the face of that cosmic struggle at the time of Esther. Uh, he's not just your average Joe. Uh, you know, he's not just an anti-Semite with a grudge against the Jews. Haman is an agent of a higher power, uh, and he is, uh, he is bringing his, uh, his evil intent to bear upon God's people. It is a spiritual battle, and he is the face of that battle for the Jews 
in Esther's time. In verse 1, he is described as the Agagite. He's a descendant of King Agag. Uh, King, Agag. Uh, king Agag was the king of the Amalekites in the time of King Saul, when King Saul was on the throne in Israel. There is a history between Israel uh, and Amalek. And all through the period of the judges and the kings, the Amalekites again and again were attacking God's people, trying to destroy them. And they crop up later as well, uh, in the time of King Agag, uh, sorry, King Saul under King Agag. And uh, God gives precise instructions to Saul on how he is to deal with Agag. And Saul doesn't do it. And as a result of that, as a result of Paul, Saul's disobedience, uh, he loses the kingship and he loses his own life. Well, as the children of Egypt are leaving, uh, children of Israel are leaving Egypt, the Amalekites attack them. And uh, they wanted to wipe them out. And it's another example of this cosmic struggle against uh, the people of God. And Moses and Joshua, uh, uh, or Moses sends Joshua out to fight the Amalekites. But that isn't really where the battle is. It wasn't in the valley below where that battle was taking place. The battle was taking place really up on the mountainside uh, where Moses was overlooking the field. And as Joshua is fighting in the valley below, Moses is up on the mountain praying for the children of Israel with his hands up in the air, as it were, wrestling in the spiritual realms. You know, he's getting his hands stuck in where that battle is really taking place as he is praying for what's happening below. And as he begins to flag and as his arms begin to, uh, to weigh heavily, he gets tired and the battle begins to, uh, to go against them. And so um, Aaron and Hare come along and they support him quite literally in prayer, holding his hands up, one on either side of him. Today, we are in a spiritual battle. We are not wrestling individuals who are against us. They're merely the human face of the opposition that is really against us. The Ukrainian soldiers on the front line are not so much fighting against the soldiers in the trench opposite, but against the Russian generals and the commanders and against Putin himself. That's really where the battle is, isn't it? There is a mastermind controlling what is happening on the battlefield. We've been through some tough issues as a church and as individuals, and Satan's had a field day, hasn't he? But we need to remember God has already won, and he graciously invites us to be part of that victory by praying for it. We have the opportunity uh, to be involved in that. Um, I used to go as a lad and stand on the cop, and they reckoned that that was always worth an extra goal to Liverpool. Not sure it's quite so true this season. But, you know, as the crowd are joining in and egging them on, uh, then it aids the victory down on the pitch. Well, it's as if prayer is like that. 
You know, it's in, as we pray and as we uh, implore God to bring about uh, a victory, he listens to that prayer. And we're involved in what is going on. Can I ask you honestly, do you pray? Uh, I don't mean five minutes here and there, you know, sort of, um, you know, a rushed, uh, a rushed garbled sentence or two before we, uh, before we go out to work in the morning. But are you there earnestly praying with your arms, as it were, grappling uh, in the spiritual realms, doing battle where it really matters? Your prayers can actively change the course of the battle below. Can't change the outcome. The outcome's certain. But we can be part of that, uh, that victory. We can have an active part in it as we implore God and as we uh, wrestle with God in prayer uh, to support this, uh, this work, this battle that's going on on the earth below. Haman was just a puppet of Satan. He wanted to wipe out the people of God. But it was only a picture of a bigger battle that was going on uh, in the heavenly realms. And that's actually exactly where we see Mordecai and the Jews uh, at the start of chapter 4. I'm not going to stray into it. But as chapter 4 opens, we see that as soon as they learn of this plot, what do they do? They turn to prayer. And a spiritual battle can only be won by using spiritual weapons. And that's exactly what they do. Um, finally, then, I want to look at Mordecai and Haman as individuals. Mordecai was not perfect. He was flawed. And he doesn't come out of this story completely unblemished. In fact, you could argue the whole trouble starts as a result of Mordecai's pride. Um, look at chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, it says, after these things, what things? Well, after chapter 2. Mordecai has just saved the king's life, exposed the plot to kill him. Uh, what was his reward? The answer is nothing at all doesn't get any recognition, doesn't get any payment, no honour. Well, the events of chapter 3 take place about five years after the events of chapter 2. Uh, five years, and in all that time, nobody recognises Mordecai for what he's done. Haman turns up, and he's promoted above Mordecai. That must have hurt, mustn't it? Uh, Mordecai's been there keeping the show on the road, you know, keeping things going. He's done uh, his best to look after the, uh, the interests of the king, and then he's overlooked. You ever been passed over for promotion at work? Uh, you know, you've, you've been the one that's done all the work, you've been expecting promotion or some sort of recognition, and then they bring somebody in over the top of you and promote him uh, over you. And he's had uh, no involvement in it at all. And to add insult to injury, it's Haman who they promoted from this hated family of King Agag, the Amalekite. He's not even a Jew. 
Well, in Persia, as in this country, really, to some extent, it's common courtesy, isn't it, to bow down to those of higher rank. And he wasn't being asked to worship Haman. He, he wasn't being asked to, uh, uh, to sort of treat him as a god or anything like that. He was just being asked to honor his, his rank, to honor his, his status. But Mordecai refuses. There's a, a, a more than a, a, a sense of petulance, isn't there, about how Mordecai responds here. Uh, I remember when I first joined the Navy at the age of 18, in fact, I've been in since I was 16, but I've been at college for two years. Uh, straight out of college, I joined my first ship uh, down in Portsmouth. Uh, and as I was walking down the quayside in Portsmouth with my older brother who lived down in Portsmouth and had come to uh, visit me, all these sailors started saluting me. And my brother's uh, jaw dropped to the floor. Here was his younger brother, and he's being saluted by people, all these hard-bitten seamen being at sea for 20, 30 years or more, and they're saluting me. And he couldn't believe it. I was just a boy out of college, wet behind the ears, and any one of them could have done their jobs better than I could. But I had a certain rank, and along with that rank came some recognition and some respect. Uh, and not to have saluted me would have been an act of insubordination on their part. Well, the Bible is clear. It says we are to honor those to whom honor is due. Um, that's both in the church and outside of the church, isn't it? In 1 Peter 2, uh, Peter says, Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. That's the very same emperor that very shortly afterwards was going to be putting Peter to death. And Peter tells us we're to honour the emperor. We have a responsibility to honour and obey those who are uh, in charge of us, whether that's our employers uh, or our elders, to honour the Prime Minister, even if we didn't vote for him and we disagree with his policies, he has a certain status, and we are to honour that status. Mordecai did not like this Agagite, Haman, uh, being promoted over him, and he wouldn't give him the honour that anybody else would have done and that anybody else should have done. And that was the opportunity, that was the opening for Satan to put the boot in against the whole of the people of God. A little bit of pride on Mordecai's part. The gospel is an offense to unbelievers. We're telling them that they're sinners, that they've done wrong. But we do need to make sure that it is the gospel that is an offense and not us as individuals. So often, Christians can be a bit obnoxious and a bit horrible and not very polite to people, you know? And we need to make sure that we're honoring those who should be honored. It shouldn't be us who are the, uh, the offense to people. It should be the gospel that is an offense to them. Um, but it isn't just uh, Mordecai who's filled with pride. Uh, Haman's filled with pride as well, isn't it? Look at verse five. When Mordecai refused to bow down, 
Haman becomes furious with him. The book of Proverbs tells us it's a mark of honor for a king to overlook an offense. Um, Haman didn't have to take offense, did he? He chose to. It was a choice to take offense. Haman could have let it go. He didn't have to uh, take offense at what Mordecai's attitude was, but he deliberately chose to. Uh, initially, he didn't, hadn't even noticed that uh, Mordecai, Haman takes this as a slight, and it was a slight by Mordecai. He did intend it as a slight. And it's only when he recognizes this slight that, uh, that he becomes angry. But once he was aware, his pride takes over. Uh, and that gives him the opportunity to focus not just on Mordecai as the individual that had caused offense, but on the whole of the Jewish race. And uh, Haman isn't averse to embellishing the truth, is he? Verse 8, he says, um, speaking of the Jews, uh, he says their laws are different to other people. That's true, isn't it? Jewish laws were different. Uh, as Christians, the rules and things that we run by are different. Verse 9, he says, so they don't keep the king's laws. Hey, that's not true, is it? They did keep the king's laws. They were following the laws of the land. And as believers, we should be uh, following the laws of the land as well. In fact, we should have higher standards than those around us. So we should be uh, keeping the laws uh, all around us. Christians should recognize that we need to obey our employer, not just when he's watching, but all the time. You know, no shirkers. Wonder whether you're known as being a shirker in your work and you're taking the opportunity to uh, skulk away uh, and get out of work whenever you can. Wonder whether we're diligent paying all the taxes that we're due, declaring everything that comes in as income when we should, or do we only declare it when we think we'll be caught out by HMRC? So Haman's embellishing the truth here, isn't he, to make his case uh, against the people of God seem stronger. And he goes even further than that, and he says, uh, so it's not to the king's profit to let them live. And we do face that all the time, don't we, uh, as Christians today, uh, from humanists and atheists and others too. Uh, they say those Christians, they don't follow our laws, they don't follow the norms of society, shouldn't be allowed. Their standards and morals are different. We need to stop them. And hence we get the, the uproar, don't we, when Tim Farron uh, is ousted as leader of the Liberal Democrats, effectively for being a Christian, or Kate Forbes, uh, you know, and her faith becomes a factor in whether she should lead the SNP or not. And we see it all the time in job applications and promotions and prospects at work, uh, where sometimes we're sidelined because of our Christian beliefs. Um, do any of you know uh, Professor Andy McIntosh, Leeds University? Sidelined for years because he promoted creationism. And he wasn't promoted when others would have been because of his, uh, his Christian beliefs. 
So we need to support those who have been persecuted in their faith and to stand alongside them. That's why the work of the Christian Institute and Christian Concern is really important, isn't it? Uh, we should be supporting MPs in Parliament who are trying to make a difference and who are suffering real opposition because of their stand for godly values and godly principles. And we need to be supporting each other too. Uh, Mordecai may have been unwise in how he dealt with Haman. Um, you know, he shouldn't have provoked uh, as a result of it. But we need to guard against that attitude which sort of says when we hear of a, a preacher going and putting an open airboard up in a Muslim area in Bradford or something, we need to be wary of saying he was unwise in doing that. You know, we should be able to preach the gospel anywhere, shouldn't we? We should be able to, to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it's in our work situation, uh, whether that's in hospitals or whether it's in uh, any government establishment, whether it's in the BBC. And yet in some of these places, to stand up as a Christian, you're really putting your head up above the parapet. And it's easy for for us as Christians to say, oh, well, they should have been a bit wiser, should have kept it all uh, a bit quieter about what they believe. Not at all. We need to be open about our faith. Uh, you know, and we need to support each other uh, in that. Well, this ungodly order goes out across the empire for the Jews to be destroyed on the particularly auspicious day uh, and Haman and the king sit down to drink without a care in the world. You know, their work is done. They've achieved what they wanted. The Jews are going to be slaughtered. But we read, don't we, at the end of the chapter, the city's in uproar. Uh, everybody around them could see how unjust this was. But Satan isn't subtle. His opposition is avert, and it's obvious, and even unbelievers can see when it's unjust. But as Haman sits down to drink at the end of the chapter, he believes he's won. But God's plan is certain, isn't it? Whatever he thinks he has achieved will not thwart God's plan. The great news for you and I this evening is we are already on the winning side. We have already won. No matter how fierce the opposition against us may seem at times, whether it's personal or whether it's as a church, we are already the winners. If you're a Christian this evening, your sins are forgiven already. We will stand in glory with the Lord Jesus Christ and every knee will bow to him. And nothing Satan can do will ever remove us from the love of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are victorious, that your plan of salvation has not been thwarted, never can be thwarted, and will, uh, will be achieved in all its fullness, in all its glory. And we look forward to that day when the Lord Jesus Christ will return, not as a baby to Bethlehem, but with a great train of angels and of uh, those who are worshipping you, Lord, we pray for that day to come quickly, as the early church prayed, Maranatha, even so. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.